Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Helping us push things forward. Here in New York, Jim Karen, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Good morning to you, Jim. Good morning, John. Another morning, and it means... Another day of talking about very, very low bond yields. In Italy, the two-year yield back in a sub-zero club. And everyone trying to work out what that means for the 10-year treasury. How is a negative two-year Italy possible, a wise one? Well, look at the 10-year in Italy right now, in at around 2%. And work this one out, Tom. Corporate paper in Europe right now, the Bloomberg Barclays aggregate corporate paper, 50 basis points is the yield. So Italy has around, what, 100, 150 basis points over, Jim, corporate credit. That is insane, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, look, I mean, Italy's in a very special situation when you compare it to Spain. Spain yields 30 basis points um, in, in, in yield. So, you know, Italy still has some risk premium in it, believe it or not, even at those low levels of yield. So to Tom's point, looking at the front end of the yield curve, we have negative yields again in Italy, deeply negative in Germany. That's been there for the last few years. Jim, the fact of the matter is that the depot rate in Europe is negative 40 basis points. And that's just keeping a lid on any potential upside at the front end of these yield curves. Is that going to change anytime soon? No, I don't think it changes anytime soon. In fact, it might even get a little bit worse because what we have to think about when we look at Italy at zero basis points, you also have to think of where you finance that. So in other words, if I buy Italy at zero, but I finance it at minus 70 basis points or minus 80 basis points, then I'm making 80 basis points. Jim, none of this is in Fabozzi. You've been brilliant with us this morning. Can you explain coming out of this, the reaction functions out of it? Can you presume financial stability? No, I, I don't. Once think, we come out of this, no. I, I, Thank I, you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there is a very you know strong challenge here, and what we have to all recognize is that we are in a global liquidity trap, meaning that you can lower these rates another fifty basis points, another hundred basis points, and you're not going to get economic economic activity. It used to be the case that when you lowered rates, you increased the demand to borrow because you could borrow at cheap levels, and then you could go and reinvest. The problem that we're having today isn't that banks won't lend; is that borrowers won't borrow and we call that a balance sheet recession and essentially what we're seeing is these is is the potential growth rate is is low enough that you're not seeing the return on investment that's required so what people are doing is is they're holding high levels of cash and as they hold high levels of cash yields continue to come down Policy rates in in Europe right now are minus 40 basis points. They're probably going to lower those even further. But they're also the financing of of these bonds is even lower than that. So you can borrow money at minus 100 and buy bunds at, you know, minus 70. And, and, you know, you walk away with a 30 basis point yield spread. It's not a lot, but it's something. And we're talking about negative numbers. So that's I think that's the way it goes. Well, the demand for income right now, Jim, is absolutely massive. Commerce Bank came out in the last couple of days, I think the last 24 hours actually, with a new contingent convertible bond, the AT1, oversubscribed and a yield, a juicy yield of 7%. And I say juicy because relative to what you're getting elsewhere, you can see why there's so much demand for that kind of paper. 
Yeah. So, so look, I mean, uh, 7% sounds really good, but I think you've got to look at the risks that are associated with that. And I think the, you know, you know, to Tom's point about financial stability, when you get yields this low, you end up taking more and more risk and lower quality risk for just, just to get any type of yield. This typically doesn't end very well. And this is one of the risks that many central banks have to think about. If, if lowering rates doesn't really spur the economic activity, then why would they create a situation where they end up creating more risk-taking in lower quality assets. So Jim, let's sort of explore this word risk a little bit further. Typically in fixed income, we talk about credit risk, perhaps duration risk. Something that's getting more and more attention is liquidity risk. Should we be worrying a little bit more about the lack of liquidity in the areas that some investors have been pushed into because of the lack of yield, lack of income? in the risk-free asset and in the risk asset like high yield, for instance. Right, so so the liquidity that you're talking about is that if you buy some of these higher yielding assets that are lower in quality, when it comes time to sell, it's going to be hard to do that. And that's the liquidity that you're explaining. And I think that is an increased risk because what investors aren't realizing is that they are getting that yield because they're shorting what we call the liquidity risk premia. They just don't have the liquidity on the asset to get out when they need to. And I think that does create some, in times of stress, that could create uh, bigger problems. And a video, Bank of International Settlements with the wonderful Augustin Karstens of Mexico, the leader of the Central Bank of the Central Bankers. They put out a blistering report a couple days ago, th- a threatening and warning of the instabilities John just talked about as we shift to the marginal beeps. Critical question, is Morgan Stanley seeing tick by tick, people reaching up for itty bitty amounts of yield because they can't get it anywhere else. It sounds like late 2006. Yeah, so, so look, I mean, you know, where I sit, I'm a portfolio manager on the asset management side, and I can tell you that what we're doing within our funds is we are not taking excessive risk for small amounts of yield. Um, you know, what is going on broadly throughout Morgan Stanley with its client base is, is a question, I think, for some of the market strategists sure. that, you know, okay, on that fine. side. But, but from an investor's perspective, from my perspective as I right. invest, I am not going to go out and just to take up a little itty bit bit of yield to take on lower liquidity risk because it's just not worth it in the end. What, and I'm going to combine this with Jim Caron, fixed income guy, with David Fokert's Landau of Deutsche Bank and economics. We're at these negative yields. John, we just had a record German tenure, negative 0.362 right now. When we come out of these negative yields, what happens when we cross zero into a positive yield? Am I right? We really don't know? Yeah, we, we really don't because essentially a lot of Thank people you. have been forced into these assets at these low levels of yields that there's going to be an income loss. Now, what you have to understand is that within fixed income, I always like to say rule number one in fixed income as an investor is don't lose money in fixed income. The potential to lose money in fixed income is very, very high. The more you push these yields down and the less cushion that you have typically from a coupon that you would normally get on a bond, the more risky it is that when yields do rise that you actually yeah. get a loss. But let me just let me count on this one point the bigger issue that we're having right now is because yields are so low they actually become highly correlated with equity so if you're trying to run a diversified portfolio typically 60 percent stock 40 percent bonds and one's supposed to go How up quaint. and the other goes down what ends up happening is that they both move in the same direction so the risk that you're talking about is higher than you think because it's becoming very very difficult to create a diversified portfolio when fixed income is correlating with Are we, equity. i'm going to burst into tears are we in the edge of covariance Ah, <laughs> let's talk about let's, that. We can't. I flunked the exam. The equation is so damn long, I flunked the exam like three times. Jim Carroll, we, we're done. Thank you so Thank much. You, greatly, Jim. greatly appreciate that primer. 
Do you want to bring in Jeffrey Wright as we drive forward? I, I would love to. Jeffrey, I'm sure, is bracing himself for the Jeffrey's first like, question on this show. <laughs> what, what have I tuned into? <laughs> Jeffrey Wright, Eurasia Group Analyst. Good morning to you, Jeffrey. Hey, how are you guys? Very, very well, and slightly confused on my side. The US then, <laughs> adding more European Union products to a list of goods that it could hit with retaliatory tariffs. We've got this long-running transatlantic subsidy dispute between Boeing and Airbus, Jeffrey. Can you just help us understand a little bit better as to what exactly is going on between the Europeans and the United States right now on this issue? Well, I think the, the broader context is they've been circling each other for months, almost a year now, on possibility of auto tariffs um, and underlying that of course is the very strained relationship between Trump and Merkel uh, as well as a number of other European leaders so you know I think it all flows from the political strains and, and of course a lot of these long-running trade disputes as well. Jeffrey the trade dispute is there Osaka seems ancient right now how do we jumpstart trade talks in every article every political persuasion there's this sort of mystery of the when of it do you have a handle on the when of our many trade talks? No. My understanding, talking to people here in D.C., is that the, the, um, the details coming out of Osaka have been very thin for people in the, in the bureaucracy at USTR who, who would be making these negotiations. So uh, I think not a lot beyond what Trump and she announced uh, in Osaka has been decided including you know, when they'll meet, what, what uh, point they'll be starting the negotiations from, all of these vital questions I think are still unresolved. Jeffrey, no timeline either. We're used to deadlines. No deadlines this time around. Is this a new approach? Yeah, I think uh, it probably, my guess is that it's an attempt to um, not provide the markets with, a, you know, the, the, when there's a deadline, the markets then provide this sort of pressure on the negotiators as it gets closer I think they're eager to avoid that. But in my mind, there is a deadline somewhere in Trump's head. It's just not a public. Oh, come on. You sound like an international relations guy. There's a deadline (laughs) in his head. Is he doing this by himself? I mean, what you just said, Jeffrey, equates to me that guys like, you know, the names we've been covering, or Michael McKee's been covering this for two years. Does Lighthizer matter to be direct? I think he matters a lot, but he only matters as far as, Trump will let him go. So um, he matters because he has Trump's confidence, because he's been the most effective negotiator throughout this process, um, and because he is uh, he does all of his work in private. He doesn't speak much except to Congress, uh, which is a, a difference from the rest of Trump's cabinet. But right. uh, <clears throat> he, he can only go right. as far as Trump will let him. So The percolation today, and this was early, John, was was – the president mentioning European tariffs or whatever. Do you partition on the one debate we don't focus on, the Europe-U.S. trade debate? Do you focus on autos separate from everything else? Or is it three-part autos, the traditional agriculture issues of Europe, and everything else? How do you partition that? I think autos are the most important issue. The The agricultural stuff uh, is also important. There's a digital digital trade component as well. Uh, there are a lot of other issues, but for for Trump, uh, autos are the most evocative uh, question, and that's true for Europe as well as for Japan. And, and you know, we've seen it past for USMCA as well. Jeffrey, it's become really clear over the last year that the overlap between foreign policy and trade policy is absolutely massive. Not lost on many people that a couple of weeks ago the Chinese president met with a North Korean leader. 
How key is that issue in trade negotiations right now? And how strong is that card that President Xi holds? It's important. I think it's a big part of the reason why Trump um, went back to was willing to sort of make a ceasefire in Osaka because she had just been in Pyongyang. Uh, I think it's also not an accident that Trump then went to Pyongyang right afterwards. Yeah. That, that sort of what he sees as a triumph in North Korea is a very important part of what he will sell as he runs for re-election. Okay. His record on foreign policy. This is distant to you, Jeffrey Wright, but just as important. What does President Xi sell at home? President Xi's in Beijing. He's got to drive forward whatever their trade stance is with a huge real distraction of protest and violence in Hong Kong. How do you perceive how the Chinese will respond to President Trump? I think they're not going to go any further than they see as in their in their own interest and in fact i think there's much more skepticism in beijing about trump's intentions now than there was say six months ago there is a a sense now that the u.s is out to to limit china's rise rather than to to get specific trade concessions and that's a big shift now this has been very helpful jeffrey wright thank you so much eurasia group This is a joy. It is a Harvard Kennedy School, and it is usually thought of as political, but they have one of the best economists in the world, Douglas Elmendorf, writing Heard over the collected egos at Harvard Kennedy, or Kennedy as it is called. Uh, Doug Elmendorf, of course, encyclopedic on our fiscal policy with his former CBO uh, work, and they have a newly minted senior fellow. Her name is Megan Green. As she has a wonderful resume of ability to join Harvard Kennedy, the number one thing is she knows a path to Fenway Park from across the Charles River. Megan uh, Green joins us, a newly minted senior fellow of the Harvard Kennedy School. Megan, congratulations. Why did you apply to HKS or did they find you? Uh, thanks. Um, so I'm going there largely to write a book. Um, and if you're a senior fellow, you do a bit of teaching and work on a project of your choice. Yeah. So it was a, a perfect match. Uh, really, really good. Congratulations on this. One of the things you do well, and you did this at Manual Life and in all your other work, is usually with every third sentence, you ask why. What is the why of central bank policy in the United States right now? Yeah, so I think that is the question everyone's been asking whether the Fed will be cutting rates. Um, And we know pretty well that they they probably will now. But the more important question is why? What's the point of cutting rates in there? I think actually the evidence is much less conclusive. So, you know, we had rates at the zero lower bound for seven years. It didn't stoke inflation or growth, really. So is cutting rates really going to help there? If you talk to businesses, and that's been the real drag on the economy, even the small businesses are reporting that they're having no problem getting access to capital. So borrowing costs are hardly a constraint for businesses. Um, so if we cut rates, are they really going to borrow more and go ahead and invest? That's really unclear. So, you know, the Fed is in a really tough spot. I think the markets are going to bully them into some rate cuts, but it's not clear that that's actually going to help. And if that's the case, then we'll be going into the next downturn whenever it comes. 
um, without any real tools to use. Certainly rate moves aren't, aren't going to be effective. They'll have to pull out on conventionary monetary policy tools again. So Megan, help us identify the problem right now and ultimately what the policy prescription would be to address that problem and where that policy effort would come from. Sure. So I think one huge problem is just oversupply of everything, of capital goods and labor. Um, but, you know, the the Fed's concerned about the capital piece, and there's not a whole lot that the Fed could do about oversupply, and the flip side of that is a lack of demand for capital. Um, so the, the Fed can deal with the supply of capital, but they can't force it down companies' throats if they don't want to borrow. Um, so I really don't think this is a job for the Fed. I actually think fiscal authorities um, need to do more, and I don't mean you know huge tax cuts. Um, that kind of stimulus, but I do think more targeted policies towards investment would really help. And also, as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're pretty long in the tooth in this recovery, and a recession is coming, probably not in the next year. But I think one thing we could do is try to set up some automatic fiscal stabilizers for the next downturn um, now that we're in a relatively peaceful period. Um, unfortunately, that's not getting a whole lot um, of resonance well, with policymakers. Let's go Matthew, Megan, and you have every ability, uh, Megan Green, to go Matthew here. I'm talking about gamma, the convexity, the acceleration of some of these bond moves. Is that tangible? Do economists, do they care about the rate of change of the rate of change of some of these yields we're seeing? So they care insofar as it is either a reflection of what's happening in the economy, and sometimes that is. Um, sometimes you know, an inverted yield curve means that investors think we're going into recession. Um, but I also think that there are other factors that are causing these big moves as well. Um, you know, monetary policy divergence is a piece of it. But the fact that we live in a world where deflation is the fat tail risk, and so actually, you know, long-term bonds are a great equity uh, risk hedge. And so, you know, I think that's causing big moves in bond markets as well. So it's, it's not clear that it's actually a reflection of the economy, um, but we look at it for sure. Maggie Green, thank you so much. Senior fellow, the Harvard thank you, School. Thank you, It is a firm of ancient history, Lazard Frere, 1848. They have launched themselves over many, many of a decade of excellence. Jay Jacob joins us now from Lazard Asset uh, Management. Uh, Jay, you, you guys write up an exceptionally acute note. Can you explain within your detail and your acuteness the oddity of stocks up amid yields that we've essentially never seen before? How does that happen? Well, it's a great question, and thank you. Um, I think that what we're seeing here is defensive stocks really finding a bid. It's pushed markets. Uh, it's pushed markets higher, and it's in many cases, I think, been the lack of alternative. What we've seen, I think, is investors positioning around uncertainty, and and sometimes the safer bet. Uh, when right. rate volatility is driving markets uh, is, is in some of those defensive equities. Do you see the defensive equities including continued dividend growth? 
Um, I think dividend growth, that is a, it tends to be a bit case by case. Outside of the U.S., a lot of investors are looking for, for yield, much as uh, U.S. investors were, were, I would say, very starved for that um, before the Fed uh, began to raise rates. Um, and I think dividends are a way that a lot of the companies are, are looking to attract investors, certainly. Um, from our perspective, I think we try to be agnostic. It's really a, about total return, um, and dividends are, are one component of it, of course. Uh, but we've got to look at the other uh, earnings-driven uh, potential outcomes there as well. So, Jay, uh, you know, as Tom was mentioning earlier, we've had such a move in the equity markets here in, in 2019 with the S&P up about 18%. Give us a sense of what you think a, a reasonable asset allocation is today. Well, we've recently trimmed back some of our equity positioning. We've been overweight equities uh, broadly uh, in our strategies for really for, for a couple of years, and we've started to take that back. We're still overweight equities um, relative to bonds in most markets, uh, but I think it's it's just that our most recent note pointed this out. I think this is much more about looking at the upside relative to the downside. Um, uncertainty is being driven very very clearly, I think, by, by policy. Uh, that could be monetary policy. It could be trade policy. Uh, and we're also concerned about fiscal policy over the, the medium term as well. And so uh, I think it's, you know, we've just taken some profits on equities. We're still overweight by a little bit, but not by as much as we were, if that makes sense. So you mentioned earlier uh, some defensive stocks, but we've certainly seen some valuations in defensive stocks that make them uh, a little problematic for some investors. How do you think about the valuation in some of some of those defensive sectors? Oh, I agree. I mean, in, in utilities and staples, you've seen a lot of inflows, um, I think, over the last three months, even the whole year. Um, and we'd expect that is going to make valuations difficult. Our way of looking for that so far, particularly in the last couple of months, is to really start turning over some of the less inspected rocks uh, in the marketplace. Um, I think that there are parts of the marketplace, emerging markets in particular, which have largely been overlooked. I mean, this has been really the story of the U.S. and China. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot of other asset classes out there that are maybe you could find more attractive valuations, uh, maybe playing the same themes in certain cases, but uh, with a better risk-reward trade-off. So my understanding is in emerging markets, there's been some significant underperformance are you feel comfortable getting maybe increasing exposure in merger markets? I think it's, you know, it's about how much of a position do you have in EM. Um, for us, I mean, if you look at a market like Brazil, right, you've got, you've got pension reform um, that we believe is going to get through the lower house. Uh, that's a big deal. Brazil, the growth is not the story there. I think it's well understood that they're in a flat to negative or yeah. very, very low growth environment. Uh, but you do have good support from valuations. You've got a central bank. I mean, the big problem in a market like Brazil historically has been inflation. Well, that's under control. So you've got, I think, a potential catalyst coming up there. You've got the ability of rates to actually be supportive. And then down the road, you might have some privatizations. And in a lot of those markets, when things go from very bad to slightly bad, uh, that's where a lot of the equity uh, return can be found. Jay Jacob, thank you so much. A long EM, or at least the opportunity of long EM. He is with Lazard Asset Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.